1942, in a dark cell, a British spy awaited his fate. A few days earlier, he had been working diligently to help build up a resistance network in France, but he'd been captured by the dreaded Butcher of Lyon. The Butcher was the worst of the worst of the Gestapo. He took a strange delight in torturing people. Suddenly, out of the darkness, the spy heard boots battering the floor. His heart started racing. Who would be sent to the chopping block today? Step by step, the noise crept its way down the dark, dank hallway. The spy's prison door started to creak open as two dark men entered the room and ripped him from his cell. The two men dragged the spy down the hallway, deeper into the darkness. The spy hardened his heart, for he knew what was about to come. The Butcher of Lyon did not earn his name for selling the best cuts of meat. Instead, he earned it through years of rounding up French-resistant members and systematically torturing them. The spy was then brought to the Butcher's chopping block. As the spy was thrown into the room, he noticed the Butcher, in the corner, excitedly waiting for his next victim. The spy was then asked a simple question. Where was the limping lady of Lyon? In response, he spat on the ground. The butcher then arose from his seat, almost happy that the man had not given him his answer. The next thing the spy knows, he is dunked into a freezing bathtub of water until the point of drowning. Then he is asked again, Where is the limping lady of Lyon? Once again, with his heart hardened, he spits on the ground. Down again the spy went into the cold water. The process repeated itself until the spy's life was dangling by a thread. He was thrown back into a cell, waiting again to be sent to the butcher's block. So, who was this limping lady of Lyon? Well, sometimes you hear a story in history that seems too good to be true. Sometimes the events and characters play out like a movie. This, this is the case that I found when I read about Virginia Hall. The story had everything a great movie would have. An underdog main character who grows to overcome their challenges. An evil, mentally unstable Nazi villain who wants nothing more than the underdog to be stopped. Virginia Hall, aka the Limping Lady of Lyon, is our underdog. She was an American spy during World War II and occupied France for the Special Operations Executive and the Office of Strategic Services which were essentially MI6, but they actually got involved where MI6 would just mostly observe. In the story, she would have to overcome obstacle after obstacle. She would overcome losing part of her leg, being judged for being a woman, and the fear of Gestapo capture. Through these experiences, Virginia shows us the power of personal growth. She would overcome struggle after struggle in her life which would grow her into one of the greatest leaders of the Allied resistance. Through hurdling these roadblocks, she would help set up the French resistance in France, which would help pave the way for a successful D-Day. She is a perfect example for the idea of leadership being personal growth. Through her experiences, she grew into one of the greatest resistance leaders. But how did she go from a woman without a leg to the flame which sparked the entire French resistance? 
Well, let's dive into Virginia Hall. Episode 5, The Limping Lady of Lyon. Before Virginia was a world-class spy, on a Friday, Virginia awoke with excitement. She had been working for the U.S. Embassy in Izmir, Turkey. The work was disappointingly boring, for the adventure craved Virginia. However, today would be anything but boring, because Virginia was going hunting. Hunting was one of Virginia's favorite things to do. While work may have been uninteresting at the embassy, Virginia could still go hunting. So, off she went out the door, with her late father's shotgun over her shoulder. After she met up with her friends, they made their way to the marshes. However, Virginia had forgotten to flip the safety switch on her shotgun. While she was making her way to the hunting grounds, she fell and reached out to grab the slipping shotgun. But when she gripped it, All she heard was a thunderous bang. The next thing Virginia knows, she's in a hospital in Izmir. The doctors were working tirelessly around her to make Virginia's recovery quick and easy. For weeks, it looked like she would recover. But what the doctors failed to notice was an infection slowly creeping into her wounded leg. Abruptly, Virginia's condition started nosediving. Her skin was black. Her foot was swelling. Bolts of pain thundered throughout her body. Virginia was battling one of pre-medicine's greatest foes, gangrene. Unfortunately, there was one solution to gangrene in the 1930s. Amputation. Virginia would keep her life, but gangrene would take her leg. Virginia would spend the next few weeks at the hospital. The storm had seemed to be over. Now, it was onto the road to recovery and coping to life without part of her leg. Unfortunately, just as the hurricane of gangrene had passed, the storm surge of blood poisoning was on its way. Once again, Virginia was battling to keep herself above water. The doctors again were desperately working to keep Virginia alive. Just as it all seemed lost, Virginia had a vision. Her late father came to her and stated, that it was her duty to survive. With her father's words, she managed to turn the tide of battle, and Virginia's health started to improve. The blood poisoning was defeated. Virginia survived. She would use this life-and-death struggle to grow and become an even stronger person than ever. She would say it was this experience which allowed her to survive multiple near-death encounters while in Gestapo-controlled France where she could have been one knock of the door away from being dragged off to a Gestapo torture chamber. But the time to worry about the Gestapo had not yet come. Once Virginia was completely healed, she resumed her work as a clerk at the embassy. However, she was extremely unhappy as a clerk and wanted more. Her dream was to be a diplomat. This was a near insurmountable task for a woman at the time. There were very few women in the Foreign Service serving in diplomatic positions. Regardless, Virginia was confident. 
She had applied before only to get rejected after bombing the written portion of the exam, even though she had got perfect scores on the oral section. Now she was exempt from the written portion since she had served as a clerk for so long. For Virginia, it seemed like it was going to be a walk in the park. But just like the wired fence had tripped her, some people in the Foreign Service cited an obscure policy that said amputees could not serve in the Foreign Service. Despite all the glowing reports about Virginia's hard work, active life, and intelligence, FDR, ironically, since he himself could not use his legs, rejected Virginia from the Foreign Service. FDR had just pulled the trigger on her dream. The dream she'd been working for for the past five years. Gone. Virginia was heartbroken. After being transferred to a boring job in Estonia, she finally resigned as a clerk. But Virginia was a force of nature. Just like a weed that manages to grow out from the crushing weight of concrete, she was going to outgrow this crushing defeat. She was going to make a difference in the world, whether the world wanted her to or not. Shortly after she resigned as clerk, Virginia made her way to Paris. In Paris, she acted as an American correspondent to help bring light to the skulking shadow of fascism in Europe. But even that did not last long, because on September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. France and Britain were about to declare war on Germany. Any average person would have gone back to the safety of the United States, but this was no average person. Instead, Virginia, wanting to make a difference, signed up to drive an ambulance for the French. She would drive wounded soldiers to hospitals as the Germans steamrolled France. Eventually, after the French surrendered, she would return to London, where she would catch the eye of an undercover agent. This undercover agent worked for the Special Operations Executive. They were in desperate need of qualified agents. And what this undercover agent saw in Virginia was an unstoppable will, a survivor, and a passion to save France. Unlike the American Foreign Service, the SOE saw her amazing abilities. She was put through training to learn things spies should know, like how to hide her personality, make secret inks, and spot and lose a tail. But even with these trainings, Virginia's odds were 50-50 to survive. Yet, she pushed on. She was to be one of the first of her kind. This kind of spy warfare had never been done before. There is no handbook or template with what she was supposed to do. Similar to how she had to figure out how to be a woman without a leg on her own, she would have to figure out how to be a spy. But this time, the stakes were life and death. So... Back she went to France. Her cover was to be a reporter for the New York Post, but her real job was to report on the puppet French Vichy government and begin organizing and coordinating local resistance work in the Vichy capital of Lyon. But coordinating local resistance work was difficult, mainly because there was no local resistance. While some brave French wanted to see France wrenched free from the grip of the Germans, there is no structure or organization for them to join. Recruiting people was Virginia's first big task. But again, it's not like she could advertise on the street or in a newspaper because the Gestapo and Vichy police were vigilant 
Eventually, she would start piecing together what would become known as the Heckler Circuit. However, while she was having success, other SOE agents in France were about to be swept up in a whirlwind of danger. Because in one quick burst, the French counterterrorism force had captured almost all the SOE agents in France. Only four remained. The reality was now it was Virginia versus the Gestapo and Vichy French. This was probably one of those moments she had to draw on the near-death experiences of her leg. But she had grown to overcome that, and she would grow to overcome this. Part of the way she would overcome being alone was through her unwillingness to ever give in. Just like how she never gave in to the gangrene, the blood poisoning, and the rejection from the foreign service, she would not give in to the fear of the Gestapo lurking in her mist. Instead, she pushed on. She networked with a brothel, which Germans loved to visit, which gave her a constant pipeline of German plans. She also set up a fake mental asylum with the help of a doctor to put agents or people who were being chased by the Gestapo. The Germans would get shivers down their spine with anything to do with mental illness, so they would avoid searching the asylum. Through these efforts, she would provide valuable intel and save hundreds of Royal Air Force pilots over the course of the war. In addition, the issue of there being no resistance in Lyon was starting to disappear. People were beginning to approach Virginia with how they could help. In all, the SOE back in London considered her the eyes and the ears of the Allies in France. But one of her most impressive feats had yet to come. Remember the agents who I just mentioned were captured? Well, they had been rotting in a prison in southwest France. They had been there for almost half a year and had barely survived the brutal French winter. The clock was ticking down on them. Any day, they could be ripped from their beds and taken center stage to a crowd of a firing squad. While these men had slipped up and been captured, they were still a valuable asset to the SOE because of all their training. So to free them would be an impressive boon to the SOE. But so far, there had been no hope for the men who were wasting away in the prison. Until a woman named Gabby, whose husband was captured with them, approached Virginia about their escape. Gabby told Virginia about the horrors of the prison. Sonia Purnell, in Woman of No Importance, writes of the situation in the prison. Quote, The beatings, the dark, the disease, and the daily diet of one bowl of greasy liquid and precisely 8.8 ounces of bread. How the vermin gnawed at the bodies of the ill and the weak, and how the place crawled with lice. End quote. The situation was desperate. The men needed to be at least moved out of the horrors of their current prison, which Virginia did through convincing some higher-ups at the U.S. Embassy still in France. The men were to be moved to a prison in the countryside. This new place was a much better prospect to spring a breakout from compared to the high walls and iron gates of the other prison. Virginia started planning out their escape. For the first time, she was leading an operation against the fascist forces instead of coordinating efforts of resistance groups. And like all other times, there was no blueprint for a prison break on this scale. And again, 
like all other times, she would grow to overcome the challenge. While Virginia was planning their escape, the prisoners had a physical training regiment to get them into prison-breaking shape. They would also note the time of patrols, timing how long it'd take to get them to the fence, and finding blind spots from the watchtowers. The plan was set. The men were to sprint from hut to hut, avoiding blinding light from the watchtowers. After they avoided the watchtowers, they would have to crawl through barbed wire to freedom. The entire process was to take a minute per person, and depended on some guards within the prison to turn a blind eye. It was a highly dangerous operation. One slip-up in the 60-second timeline would mean certain death for the prisoners. But luckily, they had Virginia Hall on their side. The day after Bastille Day, the prisoners awaited the go-ahead from Virginia. When the signal of an old lady walking by the camp came, the operation was a go. Bolts of panic and anxiety were flowing through the men's veins. Shakily, they drew lots to see who would go first. However, the signal from one of the guards on Virginia's payroll did not come on time. Thoughts of, are we done for? Did someone find out? Pulsed through their minds. The unnerved men continued to sit and wait until 3 a.m. when the signal came from the guard. The first man to go carefully creaked open the door and peered out. Then he bolted from hut to hut, dodging the piercing eye of the guard towers. Once he slipped past the huts, he crawled through the razor-sharp barbed wire. One by one, the other men followed the process. Finally, one of the last men plunged to begin his treacherous crawl through the wire when a figure emerged from the darkness behind him. A guard towered over the prison escapee. His heart sank. Their weeks of training and preparation were about to come to an end until the guard, realizing he was English, walked away, not saying a word. In all, it took 12 minutes to get 12 men to freedom, but they were out of the frying pan and into the fire. At daybreak the next day, the alarm was sounded. The machine to find these prisoners was beginning to turn. However, Virginia had hidden the men in the middle of a dense forest. For two weeks, the men successfully hid from their stalking predators. In all, the plan had worked. The SOE would get 12 agents back, who would all go on to have successful careers, some starting their own circuits like the Heckler Circuits, while others would go on to be recommended for the Victorian Cross, all because of Virginia Hall and Gappy Blotch. Sonia Purnell writes again of the impact of the escape. Virginia Hall and Madame Blotch inspired, led, and drove forward to the very end such a daring rescue operation right under the noses of the guards, which eventually became an SOE legend. End quote. Because of Virginia's skills, which she had been honing during her time in France, the SOE was soon back on their feet. However, with this massive success, like the Eye of Sauron ever searching for the ring, the Eye of the Nazi Gestapo now fixed itself to find Virginia. The man to lead that effort was the Butcher of Leon, Klaus Barbie. Klaus Barbie is our villain in this Hollywood story. He 
was abused by his father and then mentally unhinged in the fighting at Verdun, which was one of the worst places to be during World War I. After the prison break, the Gestapo was extremely successful in cracking down on Virginia's exploits due to someone infiltrating her circuit. The circuit slowly started crumbling around her. Arrest after arrest of her valuable team injected concern into Virginia's heart. In addition, the Germans were about to occupy Vichy France, which would put all of France under their iron fist. Virginia had to escape. But the butcher was on high alert. The Gestapo were crawling all over Lyon. They had placed posters requesting people to look out for the limping lady of Lyon. Virginia was in immediate danger. She needed to get out fast. However, there was only one way out, over the perilous Pyrenees Mountains. This was an extreme task for people with two legs. Royal Air Force pilots who would make the hike would claim that the climb was endless and had other words not suitable for this podcast. For Virginia, it'd be one of the toughest physical ordeals. In addition, her health was already not the best due to wartime rations and the constant stress of leading the heckler circuit. And if all that wasn't enough, it was winter. In some places, there would be three yards of snow. And again, all this with a clunky, cumbersome wooden leg. Oh, and she also had a heavy bag with a transmitter radio in it. Not all who tried the climb would make it. Some giving into the sweet warmth of freezing to death. Others were beaten down by the cold. Just like all other times in Virginia's life, she would have to draw on the experiences of her hunting accident, the desecration of her dream, and the prison break to overcome these peaks. Guided by Pasu, the brave men who guided people over the Pyrenees, she slowly made her way up the mountain. Sonia Purnell writes of Virginia's ordeal up the mountain. Her face was contorted with agony as sharp, icy wind hammered into her. Her chest strained for oxygen in short, rapid breaths of thin air. Her head pounded with the effort, and she felt dizzy. And blood started to seep out of the top of her false leg, where her stump was now an open, oozing sore. But she had no choice but to keep up with the men. Step by step, she pushed on, up and up. End quote. Just like she had pushed through day by day during her time at the hospital, she was taking step by step to overcome this mountain. Eventually, she made it through the towering Pyrenees Mountains. But once she had crossed over into Spain, her luck would not get any better. As she was arrested by the Spanish on her way to the American embassy and sent to a Spanish prison, after months in the Spanish prison, she was released and back on her way to London. However, in London, her luck would still not improve. Virginia was itching to get back into the field, but the SOE decided she was too well known to go back, that if she went back, she'd surely be captured by the dreaded butcher. So, Virginia being Virginia, she quit the SOE, mainly because America was starting to form an organization similar to the SOE called the Office of Strategic Services. 
Desperate for experienced agents, the OSS would send Virginia back to Nazi-controlled France. She would go as a support role for an agent, aka an assistant, to someone who had never been in the field. But again, Virginia being Virginia, that would not last long. Instead of acting as a liaison to coordinate resistance groups, this time Virginia would be training and setting up bands of guerrillas to rise up when the landings on D-Day happened. Virginia's whole life had prepared her for this moment. Struggle after struggle transformed a young clerk into a fierce, unstoppable leader. Now it was time to combine those experiences together to coordinate, train, and command guerrilla bands. By August of 1944, she was in command of 400 guerrillas and was putting them to incredible use through blowing up bridges, severing railroad tracks, and grinding German communication to a halt. In fact, they were even defeating the Germans on the battlefield too. For example, a massive German convoy was bolting to face the Allied armies invading France when Virginia's forces intervened. Virginia ordered several bridges in the area to be blown to pieces, trapping the frantic Germans. The battle was a near thing. Ammunition was pumped into the Germans at an unsustainable rate. But after hours of long fighting, the Germans surrendered. Yet, that was not enough for their ravenous Virginia and her guerrillas. They then moved on to the German garrison where the soldiers had come from and took that. In all, they captured over 1,500 Nazi prisoners. The Germans were starting to get scared. The fear was so crippling that a week after capturing the garrison, the Nazis fled the area. Virginia had freed her part of France. She had organized the guerrilla groups and commanded them only with herself and her experiences. If Virginia had not had the terrible struggles of her foot, rejection from her dream job, and the perilous climb through the Pyrenees, she wouldn't have grown into such an effective leader. Sometimes struggles don't have to be all bad. Yes, losing your foot to a completely preventable hunting accident would be a harrowing experience. But Virginia knew there is no sense in dwelling on it. Instead, she used it to stoke the flames of her growth. From it, she grew into a person which could withstand any type of mental strain, which came in handy during her time in France since the mental strain of the constant fear of capture would break some agents, but not Virginia. And it didn't stop there. She used her soul-crushing rejection for being a diplomat to never, ever take no as an answer. When the SOE said no to her returning to France, she didn't let that put her down. Instead, she joined the OSS to continue to make an impact. And when the OSS disrespected her, by placing her as an assistant to an untested agent, she ignored them and made her own resistant groups, which were much more impactful. Finally, her climb through the unwavering Pyrenees peaks pushed her to her limit, showing Virginia that yes, she had no leg, but she could still do anything she set her mind to. These experiences grew Virginia into an unstoppable force. According to Eisenhower, that force would help shorten the war by nine months due to the guerrilla warfare corroding the Nazi war machine. In all, 
Virginia shows us the power of personal growth. Through learning and growing from her struggles, she helped pry the Nazi yoke off the French people. The lesson that Virginia teaches us after all these years is that growth does not happen in a bubble. It is forged in the fire of our struggles and makes us better leaders. As always, you can check out the sources for today's episode on Twitter at Lessons from TL. In addition, if you enjoyed the show, leave a review on iTunes. Reviews help give me the motivation to continue to work on the show. See you all again in two weeks.